Well, Jonah is minor prophet number two. Again, they are minor because of their size, right? Not the prophet size, but the book size. They're minor because they're not as long as our three major prophets, being Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. And so as we come to the book of Jonah, we come to a book that's one chapter longer than Habakkuk, at least in numbers, but that's not a whole lot longer in content than the book of Habakkuk. In fact, Habakkuk may be a little bit longer all in all when, when everything's said and done because these chapters are pretty short. And the story of Jonah is not all that long, and the story of Jonah ends rather abruptly. But what we get from the story of Jonah is we get a lesson in biblical submission. What does it look like to submit to the Lord and, and not just to obey him? Because there's a difference between rendering obedience and rendering submissive obedience. That difference is kind of like when I look at my son, who's 10 years old now, and there was a great day in my household when I was able to look at him and say, Joshua, take out the trash. And he could do it. But the problem is, while my son obeys the command to take out the trash, he doesn't necessarily submit in a biblical fashion to his father's instruction to take out the trash because it's usually accompanied by grumbling and complaining and whining and sighs and eye rolls uh, that, though we don't approve of, I, I, can, I can understand why. I mean, the trash is not a, a fun chore to do, and that's why I celebrated the day that I was able to tell him, Joshua, this is now your responsibility. And I could tuck that under teaching my son to be a, a man, right? Teaching him to be responsible. But there's that difference in just obeying a command and grumbling and complaining as we obey the command or obeying with wrong motives or wrong uh, desires behind the obedience and submitting in that biblical way that says, okay, I want to be used, Lord, by you. And I want to be used to accomplish your will, your end, your agenda, whatever it may be. God, use me. I'm your instrument. And Jonah is a lesson in what biblical submission uh, should look like, because it's a lesson in what biblical submission in his life didn't look like. And so in a lot of ways, Jonah is a book that we can learn from a, a negative example that were provided in the prophet in a couple different ways there. But the book was also written not just to provide an example of what biblical submission looks like, but it's also a book written to magnify the compassion of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the slowness to anger that he talks about in Exodus chapter 34. It's, it's a book that magnifies that God is a a gracious and kind and compassionate God, especially to those who don't deserve it. And so that's where we're going as we study this book together this morning. But to get a little bit of background on Jonah, the first thing is just like uh, the, the book of Habakkuk, we're going to look here. We have no idea what Jonah looked like either, right? And this is going to be pretty common, but just for, for humor's sake, we get to see a little bit of what some people thought. You've got the guy on the left staring up to heaven, holding a piece of paper. You've got the one in the middle who is the most creative, I think, because there's no way that that's a whale, and that doesn't look like any big fish that I've ever seen. It looks like this is Jonah and the crocodile, and that that guy's vomiting Jonah up onto the beach there with his message, and Jonah looks way too angelic for a fish throwing him up onto the, the shore. And then you've got the third rendition of Jonah, which is not the Baptist rendition because he's doing interpretive dancing there uh, over the Ninevite city as he's pronouncing judgment upon them. But more about the background of the book of Jonah, he prophesied, lived and prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. That was 782 to 753 BC. 782 to 753 BC. We know this from a reference in 2 Kings to Jonah, 2 Kings 14. Specifically 2 Kings 14, 25. He's listed by name there as a prophet who was active during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel there. Second thing that we know about Jonah is we're not exactly sure about when the book was written itself. 
We know when he prophesied, when he lived, but we're not exactly sure when the book was written. There are some that want to argue that it was all the way in the second century BC, and they provide their reasons for that. And then there are others that say, well, no, it was shortly after his lifespan or even during his lifespan if he's the one that wrote it during the reign of Jeroboam II there. I tend to side with those that believe that Jonah was one of the authors or the author of this book, especially as you look at chapter 2 and you see the detail of the prayer that was rendered in chapter 2. This seems more like an autobiographical sketch than it does a, a biographical sketch there. And so I believe that this was a, an a early date as we're looking at it, for when the book of Jonah was written. There's a couple of, object, of objections to that. Number one is the city of Nineveh itself. It's described in this book as being a great city, meaning massive in size. Later on in chapter 3, it will say that this city was three days in journey across. It would take you three days to walk across it. By biblical renderings of how much a, a person could walk during that time, that estimate there would have been about 50 miles in diameter there. And the, the people that want to argue that there's no way that, that Jonah could, be, could have been written close to the time of Jonah's lifespan would say that Nineveh was never that large. And we would say, okay, we can agree with that, but what we're dealing with here may not be Nineveh as the city, but more likely Nineveh as the province. Nineveh as the general area that would have encompassed, yes, Nineveh itself, but also surrounding cities as well. For example, when I tell people that I'm from Texas, they say, where are you from? And I say, Dallas. If they're from that area at all, their next question that they ask me after that is what? Yeah, but what part? Where are you from within the, the area that we generally refer to as Dallas? Because if you take all of Dallas, if you take the southern suburbs to the northern suburbs, the eastern suburbs to the western suburbs, you're going to have a massive area there. And it's similar here with Nineveh to say that Nineveh was a massive area. When you take it as a province, it was. It was a significant city in Assyria, as we'll see here in a moment. And so as, as we look at that objection, we can say, okay, well, we don't need to object to that because there's an explanation for that to where Jonah could have really truly been the author. The second thing that they want to object to the authorship of Jonah is that Jonah refers to the king of Nineveh. And Nineveh was not the royal city of Assyria. And so there was no throne there in Nineveh for the king to sit upon. And so the, the critics want to object and say, well, see, this is somebody writing long after the, the book was, the events of the book took place, looking back and misremembering or misunderstanding the significance of Nineveh by saying that there was a king there. But during this time in, in Assyria's history, Assyria was under threat from, from different areas and different people groups. This is not the same Assyria that would attack the northern tribes of Israel and, and take captive the, the Israelites there, okay? This is Assyria long before then or, or prior to that at least. And so what happened there was you had different rulers pop up in different cities in Assyria. And so it was almost a state of political anarchy, but it, yet it was controlled political anarchy because the, the true ruler of Assyria, the true king of Assyria, wanted there to be uh, powerful rulers in each of his districts so that they could control what was going on in that region because Assyria was a, a large territory. And so as such, this word that's rendered king for us, it's the Hebrew word melech, which does mean king, could have referred to for Assyria and for the Assyrians, a, a ruler, a governor, a provincial official that had the highest power in that province. And so again, though we hear some object and say, well, see, there's a king in, in Nineveh and that never took place. And so this can have been written early on. We can say, well, no, it's, it's, if we understand what was really going on with Nineveh and with Assyria, this fits the, the context there. So all that to say, I hold to an earlier date that this was probably written by Jonah himself sometime uh, during the reign of Jeroboam II. What else do we know? 
we know that uh, Jonah was referenced not just in the book of Jonah, but also twice uh, elsewhere. We already mentioned it, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And then also in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. Who references Jonah in Matthew chapter 12? Jesus, yes, that's the easiest answer we get in church, right? Jesus, and it's the Sunday school answer, but it's right. Jesus says, as, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so must the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth, right? He's, he's drawn the comparison there. So why is that significant? Why is the reference to Jonah twice outside of this book significant? Well, the reason is because if, if you look at, at modern scholarship, if you Google the book of Jonah, you're going to get a lot of people that talk about it as some grandiose fairy tale. They're going to say that this is just a made-up story, that this could have never happened, that this is a ridiculously absurd plot, that it's just a, a sign of the weakness of, of people who believe that the Bible is literal, that they would follow a book like the book of Jonah. Clearly, this is just made up. But the fact that we have him referenced in a historical book like the, the book of Second Kings, that he's referenced as a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam, and then more so for us as followers of Christ, the fact that Jesus himself appeals back to Jonah not as a story, but as a historical person, and as the event, as historically factual, and says that as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so must the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. This is an attestation within the Bible of the validity of Jonah. And just for us, as we sit here to this morning together, and we think about this book, and we think about this book where this giant fish swallows a man, and he's inside this fish, it, it does seem pretty out there, right? It does seem pretty crazy to think about this, but let us remember that we believe in a God that created the universe and all that it contains in six days. And so if we're going to allow for that existence, we can allow for a, a fish to swallow a man and keep him alive and throw him up on the beach three days later, yes? What else do we know about Jonah? The theme, I've already referenced it earlier, but it's the, the boundless compassion of God. I think that's what we see just over and over and over again in the book of Jonah as we study it. Now, the book doesn't start out well, does it? The book doesn't start out well. You see in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. Arise and go to Nineveh. Here's a map for you just to get an idea of what we're talking about here. Nineveh is up in the top of the screen there. You see it circled in the, the thinner uh, oval there, and that was up in the region of Assyria. You can see the size of Assyria. Assyria was massive. This was one of the reasons why there were rulers in each of the provinces there. And so Nineveh was up in that region, and God is telling Jonah, a prophet who is currently in Israel, Israel's on the, the left side of the map there, bordering the, the Mediterranean Sea, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to Assyria, that great city, Nineveh, and call out against it for their evil. For their evil has come up, from, come up before me. And so here is a, an astounding situation for us. You have God sending a prophet of Israel where? To a group of people who are not Israelites. These are not part of God's chosen people. And so what will be God's MO as he moves forward, because Jonah was one of the earliest prophets that we have, what God's MO is moving forward is he sends prophets to his own people. Not to pagan nations, not to Gentile nations, but God is telling Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to an unclean people. I want you to go to a Gentile people. I want you to go to a people that are not my people, and I want you to call out against them for their evil. This is unprecedented for us. 
that God wouldn't just bring judgment upon another people group like this, that God just wouldn't uh, bring in a, another empire to, to crush Assyria or even use Israel themselves to go out and crush Assyria. But he's going, pardon me, going to send Jonah against the Assyrians or to, to call out against their sin. Verse three, but, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to go to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Twice it's mentioned there, away from the presence of the Lord. You'll see on the map, over on the left side of the map, you see that thicker circle, it says Tarshish. And there's a question mark next to it because we're not exactly sure of where Tarshish was. But the best evidence that we have is it was on the western side of the Mediterranean Sea. And so that's why there's an arrow pointing there left. So you've got Assyria north on the, the northern side of the map there, and then you've got Tarshish down there on the, the opposite side. And so God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes to Joppa, to modern-day Tel Aviv there, that's underlined down there in the bottom of the map towards the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. He finds a boat that's going the opposite direction. That'd be like God telling you, I want you to go to Kansas City, and you find a, a boat in Dana Point that's going to China, and you get on that boat and you take off. That's effectively what Jonah is doing here. He's fleeing from God. But I want us to focus again on this idea of, of the Ninevites, this idea of the Assyrians, this idea that the God of Israel is sending a prophet to the Ninevites, to the Assyrians, to a godless people to confront them over their sin. It's that evidence that we've talked about, about the compassion of God, yes? Because why would he send Jonah to confront them about their wickedness and give them 40 days unless God was providing them a window for repentance? Again, the theme of this book is the boundless compassion of God. And as we look at this book, we, we see these three different recipients of the boundless compassion of God. We see uh, the, the Ninevites, we see Jonah, and we're also going to see these mariners, these sailors that he's with. And we look at all three of these recipients and we say, yeah, but they're not worthy of it. I mean, think about the Ninevites, the Assyrians, a pagan, a godless people. They, they didn't deserve God's compassion in sending Jonah to confront them about their wickedness, their evil. They didn't deserve God's compassion in chapter 3, verse 10, when God sees that they do repent, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. They, they didn't deserve that compassion. When we look at Jonah and we see the prophet Jonah and we see how Jonah runs from the Lord, he gets into this boat to, to flee from God and go to Tarshish. Jonah didn't deserve the compassion of God to intervene the way that he does here that we'll see in, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Jonah wasn't worthy of that. His actions didn't merit God's compassion. He wasn't submitting to the Lord. He wasn't being obedient to the Lord. This is just full-on rebellion against God and yet God is patient and slow to anger with Jonah and demonstrates a compassion and a mercy towards him that Jonah didn't deserve. In chapter one, we're going to see these mariners because Jonah goes in and he gets into this boat and in verse four, it says, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a tempest, a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And it says there that the mariners, these seamen, these experienced ocean goers were afraid and each cried out to his God. So you have here, again, a godless people, people that have gods, but not the God that matters, not the, the God of Israel, not Yahweh. 
And they're each worshiping their own gods on this boat as it's threatening to break up. And, and again, you can see where God could have just wiped out the whole group. Jonah's on the boat running. He's on the boat with a bunch of people that have rejected God and worshiped their own gods. And God brings this storm upon the sea. He could have just ended things right there, snuffed out Jonah and the rest of them. They would have deserved that, and God could have raised up another prophet and sent him to Nineveh instead. But again, we see God's compassion. Because as things go, they begin to find out, well, who's responsible for this? They wake up Jonah because Jonah's asleep. They say, hey, begin to cry out to your God for us. They cast lots. And because God is a sovereign God, God ordains that the lot would fall upon Jonah. And they go to Jonah and they say, what did you do? Where are you from? Where are you going? Who is your God? Why is this taking place? And Jonah explains things to them because Jonah is aware now that he can't run from God. But I think what Jonah's done is he's now, at this point, resigned himself to death. And so he says, throw me overboard. Throw me overboard and everything will be okay because this has come upon you because of me. Well, the men don't want to do that. They try to row back to shore. They're saying, hey, the least we can do, we'll just drop him off back where we picked him up and we'll go on our way. But God's not having that. They can't fight the storm. They can't get their way back to shore. And so they pick up Jonah. They, they declare, look, we're innocent of his blood guilt, guilt, and they throw him overboard and the sea goes calm. Again, you've got this godless people. And it says there at the end, yeah, in verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And we want to think, well, look, this is, they're, they're now followers of God. I don't think we can get there from that text. They're not qualified to offer sacrifices. None of them are Levit Levitical priests, nor are they anywhere near the temple at this point in time. And the vows that they're vowing are cultic vows, religious vows that they would have vowed to any of their other gods. They're simply adding another God, and yet God was merciful in his common grace and compassionate to a group of people that did not deserve compassion. We can look at this group, and we can be amazed, and we can be astounded at the compassion of God that he displays for the Ninevites, and for Jonah, and for these sailors. And we can say, wow, none of them deserved it. But we also need to look at our own lives and realize that none of us deserved God's compassion when he brought it into our lives either. None of us deserve the grace that saved us either. We were all just as unworthy as the Ninevites and the Assyrians were to become objects of God's grace and his compassion. Our first point this morning is be amazed at the extent of God's compassion. Be amazed at the extent of God's compassion, specifically for you. His patience with you. That he is, Exodus 34, verse 6, a God who is slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and kindness. We need to, to do well to continually remember that and be amazed at where we were before Christ and how patient he was with us to lead us to true saving faith in Christ and, and understand that we didn't merit that, that we weren't any more worthy than anyone else of his compassion, of his mercy, of his grace in our lives. But in his sovereign will, he chose to bestow those things upon us. And we need to be thankful for that. Yesterday, I was at one of my kids' plays at school, Joshua's end of the, the school year play, and it was a room full of 20, 25 fourth graders, right? So not exactly my wheelhouse. And the play went off, and it was fun to be there and watch and everything else, and it was great to see Joshua do his part. And afterwards, the teacher gave out reading re rewards and everything else like that. But afterwards, the, there was kind of anarchy that, that popped up with all these fourth graders, and there was screaming, and there was yelling, and there was excitement because summer was right around the corner, and there was so much pent-up energy, and just 
the teacher's trying to talk and they're talking over her and everything else like that. And I'm sitting there, I'm about to start disciplining some of these kids, right? And I'm looking at this teacher just flabbergasted at her patience and her kindness and her gentleness and maybe a little bit too much passivity there. But still, I'm watching her going, you are more patient than I've ever been in my entire life with this group of kids. But as amazed as I was at her patience and her kindness and her compassion towards those kids, how much more so should I be amazed at God's compassion towards me? Because I'm far worse than a petulant fourth grader. Far, far worse with the Lord. The way that I grumble, the way that I complain at times, the way that sometimes I, I disobey the Lord. You know, all of us uh, need to, to be amazed at God's compassion to us. Just like the Ninevites, he was compassionate to. Just like Jonah, he was compassionate to. Just like those sailors, he was compassionate to. Well, we find out later why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. We find out in chapter 4 that after God bestows that compassion upon Nineveh, after the Ninevites, as we back up there, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. And we'll find out why it's a second time. But Jonah obeys, and he goes, and he does. He calls out against the city. And look at verse 5 of chapter 3. The people of Nineveh believed God. They respond to this message of confrontation and this warning of impending judgment. They believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. They are mourning. They're penitent. They're broken over their sinfulness and their evil. From the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king, there's that word, the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and he removed his, his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. So the Ninevites are even making their animals fast in response to this judgment that was coming upon them. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So Nineveh responds, they repent from their evil and from their wickedness, and from their sinfulness. And there's debate about whether or not this is genuine or not, but when I look at it, I see a lot of the markers of genuine repentance. I, I mean, I can't say for sure, but this is a clear picture of that godly grief that I think that, that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This isn't, I don't think, worldly grief that they're caught in anything. I think this is godly grief. And they're, they're calling out, and they're calling out to the Lord in a brokenness, in a penitence. And it says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But then we see in chapter 4, verse 1, what? The thing displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was worried that what happened would happen. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was worried that he was going to go there on a fool's errand to proclaim this message and then God would relent and Nineveh would be okay. And so he fled. He ran. Maybe he didn't feel the Assyrians were worthy of the compassion of God. They were a Gentile nation, a foreign people. They weren't Israel. 
God, just judge them. Just wipe them out. They don't need a message. They don't need a 40-day window. Just take them out now. He didn't feel it was wise, good, right, fair, whatever it was. Whatever his objection was, he objected and he ran from the Lord. He gets on this boat and he heads out towards Tarshish. Jonah's mindset is similar to what Habakkuk's was after Habakkuk was informed by God that God was going to bring the Chaldeans against Israel. Jonah is not telling the Lord, hey, God, you don't know what you're doing, but Jonah is acting as though the Lord doesn't know what he's doing by getting on that boat and trying to run from God. Or you call Moses. We like to think of Moses as the son of of Pharaoh, as a prince of Egypt, and think of the, the, the good attributes of Moses, that Moses was... Sure, Moses was qualified to lead his people out of Egypt, but you remember Moses killed the Egyptian. He was found out and then he fled. And where did he live for 40 years? Midian. Think Blythe when you think Midian. Midian was in the middle of nowhere. It's the wilderness. It's it's not a, a booming metropolis. And he's out in Midian. And what's he doing in Midian? He's taking care of sheep. So he's out in Midian working for his father in law, Jethro tending to the sheep when God comes to him in that burning bush and says, Moses, I've got a job for you. But what does Moses do? Moses tries to flee from the Lord too, doesn't he? Because Moses objects and says, God, you don't want me. You don't want me. I'm not the same guy I once was. I've I've been out here. I've been hanging with the sheep. And by by further reason for you, God, I've got this speech impediment. You don't want me. There's somebody better to go and free your people. I'm not the guy for you. This isn't my mission, God. And we know the rest of the story that God's mission ultimately trumps Moses' mission and that Moses submits and follows the Lord. See, running from the Lord or arguing with God, it doesn't typically end well for us, does it? God's going to have his way. And so when it comes to submitting to the Lord, when it comes to submitting to his will, it's best if we submit humbly, willingly, and quickly to his plan for us. Our second point for us this morning is this. Don't flee from God's mission, and I want to add two more words to that, for you. Don't flee from God's mission for you. Look what happens. Verse 17, Jonah hits the water, thinking probably in his mind, in fact, we'll find out that he is thinking this, that his life is over. But in verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish, this is back in chapter 1, a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then, chapter 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So this is Jonah's prayer while in the fish, reflecting on those moments while he was in the water, sinking to what he believed was his death. It says in chapter 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. That word in the Hebrew, distress, it's the opposite of salvation. It's the antonym of salvation. It's one who needs deliverance. I cried out to the Lord from my peril, from my impending doom, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Out of the belly of the grave, out of death itself, I cried, and you, God, heard my voice. Notice Jonah understands exactly who's responsible for his circumstances that he finds himself in. He understands that this is a direct result of running from the Lord. Verse 3, for you, God, you, Yahweh, you, Cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves, God, all of your waves, Yahweh, your billows passed over me. 
Then I said, I'm, I'm driven away. I'm cast out. I'm ostracized from your sight, God. And then he's got this intervention here in chapter, or chapter 2, verse 4, the second half. He says, yet I shall look again at your holy temple. Why is he saying that right now? Because he's inside the belly of the fish. He's understanding because he's been swallowed by a giant fish and he's still alive that God's doing something with this, right? And so he's saying in the midst of remembering this almost certain death that he was in, in facing there, he says, yet I know now that I shall look again upon your holy temple. Verse five, the waters, he's thinking back to the, the waters. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds, the seaweed were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is hopelessness that the prophet has at this point. Yet you, Lord, the same one who cast me into the water, the same one whose waves and billows closed over me. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away. I remember the Lord. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. You heard my prayer, Lord. Why? Because you're compassionate and you're gracious, even though I don't deserve it. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed to you, I will pay. Salvation, and now we need to think of that word not as we think of that word when we're talking on the patio after church on Sunday. This word means physical deliverance at this point in time. Salvation, this physical deliverance, delivering me from certain death, Lord, belongs to you. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah was brought face to face in a very real way with the futility of running from God's mission. Guys, we don't want God to have to appoint a fish to swallow us up to, to get the message across to us, do we? This is not a pleasant experience for Jonah. This is not the flannel graph, he's inside the fish, or the Pinocchio lighting the candle and making the whale sneeze, right? This is not a pleasant experience to be in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. But God's grabbing a hold of him saying, I have a mission and you are going to go on the mission that I have for you. Because Jonah tried to run by getting on the boat and going. But then also Jonah tried to run by just ending his life, by jumping over the, by, by being thrown overboard. I mean, think about Jonah's mindset. Rather than saying, hey guys, just take me back to shore because I need to go do something the Lord has intended for me to do. Jonah tells the, the sailors, just throw me overboard. I'd rather die than do what God wants me to do. But even there, even trying to run by taking his own life, God says, no, I'm, I'm not going to have it because I have a purpose, I have a mission for you. Whatever your reason is for resisting the Lord, if it becomes clear what God's mission is for you and you're resisting that mission, you are always going to be wrong. But when we think of the mission of God for us, each of us can get into the, our own unique life and, and what God has called us to in life. We can all get there, but I want us to, to think more about a broader, more of an umbrella mission that all of us have. It's actually a, a pretty great mission. It's a great commission, Right? Matthew chapter 28, God has commissioned all of us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded us. 
And so I want us to think about that because that's a mission that every single one of us in this room has. And I think that that's a a mission that so often we try to flee from just like Jonah tried to flee from the Lord. God has enlisted all of us to be evangelists. And so if your mindset has been, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, that doesn't excuse you from the Great Commission. That doesn't excuse you from Acts 1.8 being a witness for the Lord to the ends of the earth. Because here's the reality that I want you to think about. You have a circle of influence that I don't have. Each of you in this room, each of us in this room, we have a circle of influence that's unique to us. We know people who need Christ in our lives that the other men around these tables don't know. And God has put you in their life as he was sending Jonah to Nineveh to be his instrument, to be his voice, to be his mouthpiece, to warn them of impending judgment and to call them to faith and repentance in Christ. Now, our message goes further than Jonah's, but we have a better message than Jonah had because Jonah didn't call for repentance. Jonah was just pronouncing judgment. But for all of us in this room, It's not a matter of do I have the gift of evangelism or not. It's a matter of am I going to submit to the Lord? Am I going to be obedient to God? Am I going to see the the people that he has put in my life who don't know Christ as people that he has put into my life intentionally, sovereignly, so that I can share the gospel with that person because they need it. And so the question I want you to ask together this morning is, is where is your Nineveh? Maybe it's your next door neighbors that you've been friendly with, but you know they they don't go to church. Maybe you've got a a decent relationship. You guys have had cookouts, barbecues together, this, that, and the other thing, but you've never actually taken the time to be intentional about sharing the gospel with them. So your Nineveh isn't thousands of miles away. It's, It's less than 100 feet away. And they need Christ, and God has commissioned you to go to them. Or maybe it's your coworker, the one that you've done projects with, the one that you've worked with, the one that you've been friends with, the one that you go and grab lunch with, the one that you sit and you talk about politics and sports and the weather with, but you've never gotten to talk about Christ with. Maybe that's your Nineveh. And today, your Nineveh isn't thousands of miles away. It's five feet away in the the office next to you, the cubicle next to you, whatever it may be. Or maybe it's the, the person that you ride around in the truck with all day long. And you've been commissioned, you've been sent, you've been commanded to go with the message of hope, of faith and repentance. Or maybe your Nineveh sits at your breakfast table, your lunch table, your dinner table with you every single day. And there's people in your immediate family who don't know Christ. And maybe you have shared the gospel with them. Maybe you've invited them. Maybe you've brought them. Maybe you've drugged them to church. But you maybe haven't revisited that in some time now. And you need to go back to them and say, hey, there's something important we need to talk about. Wherever it is, we all have Ninevehs in our lives where God is calling us to go, where God has commissioned us to go with the gospel. And just as we all have Nineveh, we all have our Tarshish, that place that we run, the way that we run, the place that we flee to avoid having to do what God has called us to do. Maybe we're like most of the rest of Orange County, 
And when we get home, we open our garage door, we pull our car into our garage door, and we hit the garage door button to close the garage door before we even get out of the car, because that avoids any potential of us having to talk to anybody about anything that we don't want to talk about. A good way to fix that is do what I did. Just move and fill your garage with a bunch of stuff, and now you can't get your car in your garage. So there you go. Or maybe with that coworker, is that you just keep conversations at the surface level. And your Tarshish is in your mind. You're fleeing to this idea that the enemy has put there that you can't share the gospel because if you share the gospel, you're risking your job. And if you lose your job, you can't support your family. And God's called you to support your family, so I can't share the gospel. Or maybe it's around the the table with your family. Your Tarshish is this false concept of unity that you're trying to preserve. Well, if I talk about the gospel again, things are not going to go well. We need to let go of those and submit to God. Stop fleeing from his mission for us and entrust in obedience to him. So Jonah is vomited onto dry land. This is why this story is flannel graft for children because this is, this is one of those stories that grabs little boys from the word go and says, okay, I'm ready. All right, God, I'm, I'm ready to follow you. You have a story in your book where a fish throws somebody up onto the beach. I'm all in, right? And so Jonah gets up and he says, there's, there's only up to go from being puked onto a beach by a fish. Like the, nothing worse can happen. So, okay, God, let's go, right? God comes to him a second time and says, arise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, this time, I'm in. So he goes. Chapter three, he goes to Nineveh, that great city, to call out against it the message that God was to tell him. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Now remember, we're talking about this province here. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a full day's journey, about 17 miles. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And we read earlier what Nineveh's response was, that Nineveh repented, that Nineveh was broken, that Nineveh, the Ninevites came together from the greatest to the least of them. They put on sackcloth and they sat in ashes and they mourned over their sin and they called out to God that God might be merciful and compassionate to them. And he was, he relented from the disaster that he was going to bring upon them because of their response. And then we saw in chapter four, verse one, but the thing displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee Tarshish. I love prayers that inform God, don't you? This is why, God, in case you didn't know, this is why I ran. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger about... Jonah's complaining about this. Talk about petulance, right? I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. You wasted my time, God. I knew this is what you were going to do. Therefore now, O Lord, please kill me. Take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is ridiculous. This is absurd. Jonah's, his, his lack of a compassionate perspective towards the lost is astounding. And maybe none of us have gotten there. 
But I would argue all of us could grow in our perspective towards the lost in our lives. It's going to help us with that second point that we just talked about. If we can gain a better perspective of those people that need Christ, in fact, it's our third point together this morning, we need to embrace God's perspective on the lost. Embrace God's perspective on the lost, something that Jonah was severely lacking in. It says in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. Why does he do this? Because he's going out there to die. He's going to go sit out in the city under this booth. And yes, he wants some shade because he wants to be comfortable while he dies. But he goes out there to, to die. Lord, take my life from me. And he sat under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He's still praying that his petulant hissy fit that he's throwing here is going to change God's mind. That God's going to say, okay, Jonah, you know what? You're right. I'm going to relent of my relenting and I'm going to destroy them anyways. That's Jonah's last hope that he has at this point. And notice what God does to teach him of where he's wrong. It says in verse 6, Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. Look at the contrast. It displeased Jonah exceedingly in verse 1 of chapter 4 for God to spare the Ninevites. But what makes Jonah happy is a plant that gives him shade. Exceedingly happy. But when it came up, or when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked again that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. God, have I not made this clear to you? I jumped in the sea. And now twice, I'm just asking for you to put me out of my misery. Verse nine, but God said to Jonah again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. He throws the cows in there just for good measure at the end with Jonah. He's like, Jonah, you're mad about a plant. There's, There's cows in there. There's meat in there, Jonah. That if I go all Sodom and Gomorrah on that, there's no burgers coming out of that. Jonah, think about the cows. And he goes, oh yeah, and by the way, there's also 120,000 souls in Nineveh. So he's, he's trying to teach Jonah here. Again, compassionate, patient with Jonah here, even at the end. Because Jonah's going, God, kill me. God could have killed him. Would have been just in killing him. But instead, God uses this lesson of the plant to teach Jonah a lesson He's calling out Jonah and showing Jonah the the error of his ways by saying, Jonah, you have more compassion for a plant than you do for the 120,000 lost people in Nineveh who I sent you to. There's more value in one of them a million times over, an infinite times over than there is in this stupid plant that gave you shade for a day. And yet, Jonah, your heart is more concerned for the plant than it is for the people. We need to develop God's perspective on the lost. 
be more concerned for the person than we are for our own comfort. More concerned for the person than we are for even our, our, our reputation. More concerned for the person than we are for some false sense of, of unity around the, the breakfast table. More concerned for the person than a relationship with a coworker, and whether or not that continues, whether or not that changes. More concerned for the person than whether or not we're going to have awkward situations at the next neighborhood block party that we have. So as we think about embracing God's perspective on the loss, some ways that we can do that, a few questions to, to help us develop that. First is, who are you praying for, for salvation? Who are the lost that are on your prayer list right now? If you start praying for the lost, that they would come to faith in Christ, that's going to begin to develop within you this perspective on the loss that God has. It's going to begin to, to cultivate a compassion for them and a love for them. So begin praying for the lost if you're not already doing that. Second, who are you sharing Christ with? If you want to embrace God's perspective on the lost, spending time with the lost and sharing the gospel with the lost is a great way to begin to have a greater heart for the lost and a compassion for them. It's one of the things I love about what we do with our college ministry, with the bridge, is we go out onto Saddleback's campus and we set up a tent there and we interact with students. And what's so great and what's so encouraging is that, guys, it's, it, sometimes we live as though we're Christians and everybody else in the world, they're all a part of ISIS. They all want to kill us. They all hate us. But that's just a lie from the enemy to paralyze us and keep us from going after people and sharing the gospel with them. Because when you go onto this, this college campus, right, and it's millennials at that, right, so double scary, right, unbelievers and millennials, and you begin to engage with them, they want to talk to you. They're curious. They don't know the gospel. They don't know anything about it. And so they're willing to have a conversation. They're willing to talk to you, and your heart breaks when you find out how wayward and lost and how ignorant they really are of God and Christianity in Christ. And so go out and begin to be active in sharing the gospel with people. We've got ministries here that you can be a part of to do that. We've got an evangelism team. We've got Camp Pendleton. You can come with us to Saddleback when we start back up again in the fall and, and be a part of that too. But just go and begin to be active and be used by God in sharing the gospel with people. And then the final thing that will help us embrace God's perspective on the lost is accurately remembering our own story. How do you remember your own testimony? I think the further we get away from that moment of conversion, the better we feel like we were before conversion. We lose sight of how desperately wicked and evil we were before Christ. That idea that we were just like the Ninevites, as much in need of God's compassion and mercy and grace before Christ as anyone else that's ever lived. So if we can begin to look at people the way that we were before Christ, that's going to, again, help us understand and help us develop this godly perspective on the lost. Remember 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And this is the perspective that we, we need to have, the mindset that we need to have. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's mission for you is not to go to Nineveh, at least not literal Nineveh, but it is to go to your Nineveh. It's to go to wherever the lost are in your life and to go to them with a message, not that, hey, in 40 days, God's going to bring judgment upon you. 
But it's this message of impending judgment that if you don't get right with God, there is judgment that awaits. There's a state of eternal judgment that awaits. But there's also the message of hope that Jonah didn't have, that you and I have, that now we can bring as well to say, but if you will repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God will forgive you. You will no longer have any of that judgment to fear. And so as we think about that concept again of biblical submission, not obedience the way that my son obeys when I ask him to take out the trash, but I'm, I'm talking about that. Let's, let's all get there together. We're, Jonah didn't ever get here. Not that we know. We don't have the rest of the story, but that's not the point. Jonah was, was obeying the Lord in chapter 3 when he went to Nineveh, but he was obeying the Lord still without that full biblical submission, which says, okay, God, use me for your end, for your agenda, for your purposes. I'm all in. I'm going to humbly and willingly submit to you. That's the mindset we need to have when it comes to God's mission for us. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for this book, thankful for the lessons that we learn here, thankful, God, that you are patient and you are compassionate, that you are slow to anger, that you are a God who is merciful, Lord. God, I pray that for each of us in this room that we would be bold with our faith, that we would be bold to be on mission for you, answering the call to share the gospel, to take the truth of hope in Christ and and the call for repentance and faith, that we would be faithful to take that to the lost that are in our lives as well. God, I pray that each of us would have those opportunities. Imagine if each one of us in this room, even just in the rest of this year, saw one person come to Christ and then that person went out and and was used by you to bring somebody else to Christ and how quickly it would multiply, Lord. May you be kind to us in that regard, Lord. We we long for that. We pray for that. I, I ask for such fruit to be born in this church, God. Make us a people zealous to go with this message, to be your ambassadors as you call us in 2 Corinthians 5.20, to go out and implore the lost world around us to be reconciled to you through Christ. Father, may we be found truly submissive to you in that end. In Christ's name we pray, amen.